Welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I am your host, uh, Jesse Single. I'm an author and uh, writer, podcaster, etc. You should check out my newsletter, jessesingle.substack.com. Uh, yesterday I did a post uh, sort of on the drier side, but it's like a, about a way that researchers distort the evidence for the interventions, which is something I'm interested in uh, and wrote a book about. And I think it has a lot of real world ramifications. Uh, of course, check out my podcast, Blocked and Reported, blockedandreported.org. Um, I don't have a huge amount of talk amount to talk about. I wanted to, uh, folks should get in the queue if you have questions or comments on everything. I am unfortunately going to get sucked back in briefly to... <laughs> Not only responding to a tweet, which is always a questionable use of my time, but responding to a tweet about the never-ending woke wars. Um, Jason Stanley, uh, the Princeton, not Princeton, uh, Yale philosopher who wrote a book about fascism, although I guess that's not his his area of academic expertise, uh, tweeted this a couple days ago. The moral panic about wokeness in publishing is a prime example of projection and misinformation. They are trying to distract your attention from the fact that the route to success now in publishing and journalism is being the anti-woke spokesperson for the moral panic. Um, The idea that the route to success now in publishing and all caps journalism is being the anti-woke spokesperson for the moral panic is just sort of one of the most insane things I've read from like a reputable source in a while. There's obviously a market for anti-wokeness. And some people have gotten like legitimately rich off of it. And I've written about the excesses of sort of anti-wokeness. I also hate the term wokeness. We don't have a better one. I think everyone knows what we're talking about. If people want me to clarify, I can clarify. It's anyone who has been following this closely knows that in, um, So Stanley, I think, is responding to a column by Pamela Paul about the book publishing industry. The book publishing industry has had these psychotic moral panics that started in YA fiction and then extended to adult fiction where books were getting unpublished and edited at the last minute and just uh, derided over nothing, over often like rumors about what was in them that didn't match what was in them or literally one person tweeting and a publisher goes, oh, our bad, our bad. We'll change that. We'll change that. Um, I've, I've covered this. I know what's going on. The idea that in book publishing, except a very small segment of it, you're going to have a good time being anti-woke rather than going along with the orthodoxy is just crazy. And I don't know. I I feel like I – maybe I am guilty of this sort of epistemic trespassing and don't realize it. But I feel like I try not to chime, spout off confidently about shit I don't know anything about. I think there's no chance Jason Stanley has any idea – what's actually going on in publishing or journalism if this is what he thinks is going on. And it's the level of denial and and outright delusion worries me because I think a lot of people agree with him. And I, I think the move here is to just abstract this so much and just use like big, rigid statements. The route to success is being anti-woke. Just a very confidently stated overstatement. Um, I think that makes it so that that makes it harder to discuss specifics and examples, which I think is useful and which is something I try to do. And I think it's important to talk about what sort of speech should be allowed or punished in liberal spaces, where the lines should be, what happens when we embrace concepts like speech causing harm, because everyone thinks some sort of speech causes harm. That is like a philosophical question. What do we mean when we cause harm via speech or claim someone 
is causing harm via speech and should certain people's harm claims be privileged over others. That's an actual philosophical conversation that would get us somewhere. The other route is to just be a bloviator and to basically lie about what's – I mean I don't want to call him a liar. I think he's probably in such a bubble in much the same way that I get emails from people in publishing who are worried about the illiberalism. Um, he's hearing from a different group of people. But we should acknowledge our blind spots. We should acknowledge who we're not hearing from. So, yeah, I don't know. This, um, I don't understand the point of this. Other people should get in the queue. Neil, what's up? Hey, Jesse, just to respond to the thing you brought up. So why does it have to be projection? Why can't it just be true that there is a, like a wokeness in publishing that is like negatively influencing certain people? And then also being like super anti-woke is a way, not the way, but a way to like success in publishing and journalism. Like, I don't, why does, why do they have to be in conflict? Um, no, I think that's exactly right. I think a huge, a huge flaw in a lot of public intellectuals and pundits is the embrace of either or thinking instead of both and thinking. I mean, I'm sort of speaking in mottos now myself, but what you just said is exactly right. Stanley saying the route to success is being anti-woke. Um, I saw this being retweeted by Rebecca Traster. Rebecca Traster is a very good writer, but she's she's offering a vision of the world through richly reported and carefully crafted pieces that is compatible with the quote-unquote woke worldview. You know, it, it's pro-feminist. Uh, it's the idea that, that the patriarchy still has a hold on a lot of stuff, although she wouldn't say it in, in such simple terms. But I think a lot of people know that you can get rich um, – you know, uh, writing in concordance with the party line on this stuff. So, yeah, you can... I mean, first of all, hardly anyone's getting rich writing anyway, but you can get rich doing that. You can also get rich going the hardcore anti-woke route. So, yeah, I, I, I think you're totally right. It's just watching someone who's a professional philosopher at Yale, um, the difference between the type of thinking you would like to think they do in private or when they're working on a paper versus what comes out on Twitter is, is striking to me. And it makes you wonder, maybe his academic papers are not like on technical subjects are not careful. Maybe they're just as sort of sloppy and broad brush, but I don't know. Yeah. Or, or is it just their, like their public Twitter persona where Twitter, because it's so easy to make a tweet, it's like lower quality than, where it's like you you actually have to like think about and work for stuff when you're writing papers. Yeah, and when you write a paper, there's very little reward. It, it's like um, he gets instant validation, 500 retweets, you know, from from saying this. Whereas the amount of time it takes to put into like a careful piece of writing that involves research uh, and and thought and is more nuanced. Mm -hmm. You know, you barely get any any rush of uh, approval from that. So I think the incentives are really bad for careful thinking, as always. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah. the other thing I, I initially wanted to call in about was that I was thinking about how... So I, I just moved into this new place, because um, my old place, the landlord, was like a psycho. But anyway, so there's been a lot of spiders. And so I always kill the bugs and the spiders. And I feel like I'm like a moral absolutist, and I feels like obviously wrong to me right? To kill these spiders, right? Because if I was a spider, I wouldn't want to be killed. But I still do it. And I don't feel bad about it. But I can admit that in like a perfect world, I wouldn't be doing it. And it's like a bad thing to do. But then I and same with like eating meat, right? I think it's like, obviously a moral wrong, but I'll still do it because meat is tasty, right? And like, I don't know, like, like, I feel like there are people who can't, like they, they, 
when they do something bad, rather than just admit that it's bad and like either feel bad about it or not, but but they can't admit that it's bad. They have to like justify it. And like, I don't know. I don't know why there's such a split between some people who seem to be able to just accept that they've done something wrong and others who like, they like, if they admit that they've done something wrong, then they're like not pure or something. And so they make up these like crazy explanations for, for how, what they did was actually totally justifiable. And I just don't, it just, I don't know like what causes me to be able to, to just go, Oh yeah, that's bad. Right. Or, or like, and then some people to not like, I don't know like what the distinction is. I don't know if you have thoughts on this. Um, sorry, the distinction between what and what? Between, like, like being able to admit when you were wrong, whether or not, like, like putting whether or not you're going to change the behavior aside. But, like, but like what makes some people, like, unable to admit when they're wrong? Because it's not like, I'm not saying, like, oh, I'm such a great person for admitting when I'm wrong because I still do the, the, the thing that I think is bad. I'm just, but I can still admit that it's bad. Like, why, why can some people, they just have to believe that everything they're doing is good i don't know i mean i guess it's you know it's hard to admit when you're wrong but i think a lot of us probably acknowledge don't you think that um most people acknowledge that like they do some stuff that's somewhat bad like that there's a mix there yes yeah sure but i just i guess i'm i'm guess i'm talking about twitter and i guess i should never be trying to understand people on twitter but but i don't know there's sometimes these threads that are like like just like insane or like or like I don't know, just, like, in general, like, people, like, try to, like, concoct an explanation. Like, I guess also, like, talking to people in real life at Berkeley is, like, very similar, like, where these people just, like, they have to, like, make up a reason why it's, like, like justifiable. I don't know. It's, like, maybe this is, it, it's, I feel like this isn't even a wokeness thing. Like, people do this in general. No, it sounds like you're just right? talking about, like, highly ideological people, and there's more likely on both Twitter and in Berkeley, you're more likely to encounter highly, highly ideological people. Yeah. Yeah. That might be an explanation. I'm also in like a California bubble. I feel like if I move to when I move to like Florida or Texas or wherever, I'm going to experience the same thing, but from the opposite yeah. side, right? Yeah, people yeah. thinking they have the right understanding of the world and being overly critical of those who don't. I, yeah, I think it's it's ideology, but um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I appreciate it, Neil. Thank you, uh, We King. And then if anyone else, we queue's empty after that. I did this. Uh, on short notice, so no surprise, but if anyone else has a question or comment, hop in. Wee, what's up? Hi, yeah. Um, we, I come across this quite a lot. I'm calling you from Cornwall, UK. I run an artificial intelligence company, and AI ethics is something we deal with and think about a lot. And I find the people in the AI ethics field to excuse, and it's a growing field of people who are extremely smart, PhDs and so forth, excuse and incentivize some of the most horrific behavior and authoritarian beliefs. And I see the effect it's going to have, for instance, how AI is going to be used with the state. And it is terrifying, but these people 100% believe them to be good. Oh, Deb, give me an example of, of like what kind of authoritarian behavior you're talking about. I can give an example that it, I've, this hasn't been published. So you're going to hear something that breaking um, news here on single matter conversations. Well, it, it was that just uh, when the pandemic started, um, some of the biggest tech companies, AI ethics departments, got together, and I was invited along to this online seminar, this sort of teens meet, based in Europe, where it was about how they can use AI in order to counter elephant poaching. And I sat there with, well, on this online seminar with 60-odd people, 70-odd people, 
from all over the world from some of the biggest tech companies. Remember, these are their AI ethics departments. And I saw a presentation that made my jaw drop to an extent that it was terrifying. And this was just when uh, Black Lives Matter was happening. I knew a lot of the people were signaling with their, their black rectangles. And they were describing how to use what's called AI Edge. So AI Edge is the new form of AI. And it's AI that works on devices with little or no connection. And they were talking about how to stop elephant poaching. They could have something that could spot a um, poacher with a gun and then notify the authorities. And that would reduce elephant poaching. And as soon as I heard that, my sort of, as I said, my jaw hit the floor. And I was going, what else? This is going to be terrifying. And they, this again, going to reiterate, these are the AI ethics departments, some of the biggest tech companies, the brands you, you would all know were putting forward this as an idea. And on one of the slides, it was, we would then call out um, the authorities and on it had a helicopter gunship. Now, I then asked a simple question, who are the poachers? And I also brought up an article from BuzzFeed quite a few years ago from about WWF and about how the rangers were um, actually suppressing the local communities and putting people out of their 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 um, huts and, and communities. Yeah. And they were actually proposing a AI system which would notify the authorities in order to prosecute the most vulnerable people in the communities, black Africans. I then went, this is absolutely disgusted and disgraceful, how you could even think like this. And what I did was actually turn around and said, is there any Africans in this? And there was no Africans. <laughs> I then turned around and going, right, do you do understand what you're doing? And then I turned around and said, which government is this for? And it was Tanzania. Tanzania in 1997, the, um, one of the ministers said poachers should be shot on sight. Now, these were all well-meaning people in AI ethics, but not the black rectangles, right? right? And I'm seeing the most dystopian behavior and, and choices being made. Now, I then, because I was the only one who put up their hand and said, like, this is nonsense, put them in contact with uh, people in Africa who commented on the, on the BuzzFeed article, and it all sort of went away. But if no one had said anything, you can imagine what this would have been used yeah. for. Yeah, I mean... Not only used for that, but but other possible applications of that kind of technology, where like we can just see someone with a gun and notify the authorities. Just that that could be misused in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, it could have been used by so many of authoritarian African governments in order to suppress their own populaces. And this is from some of the biggest brands' AI ethics departments. So, and I can give more and more. Um, stories about from AI. Do, do you think that, that as this technology, not to talk over you, but my sense is it's absolutely yeah. inevitable that we're going to just get like truly nightmarish situations in places like China. I mean, hopefully not the US or the UK, but it just seems like impossible that the worst governments in their hand won't get access to the most pernicious forms of this technology. Uh, I mean, my chief data scientist is a political refugee from Hong Kong. You know, the UK um, opened up yeah. to um, political refugees from Hong Kong. So he's one of them. And this, he worked for the Hong Kong government. And he left because he saw what was happening and he protested. And he saw how his job went. He saw what was going to happen. And he got out. And the stories he gave, I did a, I, I hosted an event, Instruction to AI, and he talked. And a tech event, people were crying. 
And this was the use of AI in tech. But I would turn around and go, don't worry, right? Um, don't worry because it won't work. And I used to think, yes, the thing like Chinese governments would be dystopian, but it doesn't work. The use of AI in a free society like the West, Google, for instance, makes massive amount of decisions of not using AI or skews it in a way because it, it does certain things that when it goes on Twitter has a massive condemnation and it just doesn't work. In a free society, having that just doesn't work. In China, it also doesn't work because you're trying to flatten out all the people and use artificial intelligence and it can't work. It's impossible. It will fail. But it will cause great harm while it's doing When you that. say it can't work, just, just uh, explain that to me a little bit. Unpack that. Like, okay. why can't it work in China? So, you know, when we talk about biases, so when people talk about biases in, in AI, they think of data biases. Um, well, actually, what we think about in AI and biases is something in your networks. Okay, we think of bias in a different way than they, they think of bias. The way you collect data, the way you label people, right? So let's say something controversial here, right? I'm going to say something controversial. I hope this is not being recorded. So, <laughs> um, is that let's say you want to label people's ethnicity, right? One of the biggest problems we've got when it comes to data bias is that we label, we say like, uh, let's say, it, it use the U.S. term of the way they use black. We in Britain we do it differently, right? So. Um, you might label black. Well, that is a social construct and it fails in data collection because you can't use AI on it because what you've just done is label a social construct. Does that make sense? So in China, they might try and you label. You say it's almost like a garbage in, garbage out situation. It's garbage. It's complete rubbish. So when people yeah. talk about bias and then they talk about ethnicity or race, yes, it's garbage data. I'll, I'll give you an example, Jesse. All right. It's always a good one I use. If you go onto your Google and incognito mode, I'm sure you know how to do yeah. that, right? And then type in, right, um, uh, uh, black family, right? And look at image results. You will see 100% black people, as you would, you see as social contract, as there, okay? Then type in white family. You'll also see black family in that results as well. Because not, because the labeling can't be done, what Google does is make a defensible position and then therefore skew the results because they can't do it. I just did that and you're absolutely right. That white family includes a lot of black families. You're, you're saying Google made what decision for what reason? They made a defensible position. What China tries to do is try and make a true decision. Remember, their politicians are engineers, so they see the world as an engineering way yeah. of thinking. What Google's done is gone, we can't do it without results appearing racist as how Twitter might see that because race is a social contract. The labeling breaks down because what is a black person? So let's say if someone's hard cast, are they black? You can't do it. So they, they tried to do it, which is the reason why they kept on failing. And now they've just created a defensible position. That's interesting. Okay. So you're saying they, they are just responding to public pressure in a way, something like the Chinese government yeah, doesn't so have to worry about. Yeah, so therefore the AI can't work on that scale. Ah, that's really interesting. This is a subject I need to know a lot, a lot <laughs> more about, or maybe soon it won't matter because uh, we'll all be taken over. Oh, but it doesn't matter. What we do is build AI for the individual against the state. That's the big game. That's what your but company does. 
yeah, so it, it, so I build AI for, um, from the ground up. So for homeless people and everything to access services. Imagine if a homeless person could use AI in order to access, let's say, housing. That is better. They would have a more powerful tool than the state. The state gets worried. Putting AI in the hand of the individual makes the state actually terrified. And everybody thinks about AI in the hands of the state. Actually, the AI in the hands of the individual will completely disrupt our relationship with the state. The um, What's the name of your company? I9, HI9. All right. I will uh, check that out. I appreciate the call. That's a good just Learned a lot. Uh, Bershaw first. What's up? A.K.A. Pongo 2. Uh, yeah, hi Jesse. Hey. Um, okay, lots I could say about the last caller. I'll just skip that. Um, uh, yeah, okay. Um, I was sort of wanting to ask you about. Um, this is kind of a more general question. It's it's related to that book, The Bright Ages, that you guys talked about a little while ago. Yeah, and the question of whether I should read it. Um, I know that you haven't actually read it, but it's basically like the perspective I have on it is just that like I'm almost certain that I'm going to hate the book, but I feel like it would be wrong to just based on that judgment, like not read it. And I guess I'm wondering if you've been in that perspective, been in that position and what you're, I guess for one thing, you're, you're sort of in a position where you read stuff for a living, whereas I don't, at least I don't read like historical nonfiction for, for a living. Yeah. So do you have like a take on that or like would it would it, it is there some kind of obligation in something that you shouldn't j- maybe judge a book by its cover or its press release or anything like that? Yeah, I, I, it's a good question. I struggle with this a little bit because unfortunately on Twitter now we, we see so much more about like authors personalities than we used to. And the authors of that book are just raging pricks, like top 10 percentile pricks, especially David Perry. Uh because I'm petty and because his prickishness has targeted me in a way I found like particularly creepy, which is not a word I use a lot. Uh, I would not, I would not read this book, but I also, you know, I see the shit people say about me online where they try to like get me deplatformed or have other people not hire me. So I, I would never tell someone else not to read a book because I think someone was an asshole online or cause they were mean to me. It just, I don't know. It just feels wrong as a writer. I, I have some questions about whether folks with their ideological commitments could do good history that won't distort stuff just based on their tweets. So I have some like, I think more substantive uh, reasons to doubt them. But if, if it's, if you're interested in the middle ages and in uh, a revisionist in in the good sense of the word history of them, I I would see no reason not to. There's a lot of like sci-fi and fantasy I would want to read, but they're just, those are some of the highest concentrations of just insufferable Twitter people. And I worry I'm missing out on fiction. I'd really like, cause I'm just like, I see the name. I'm like, Oh, that person generally, is gross. Generally speaking, you are not their, their fiction is pretty much exactly as horrible as you'd expect. Based on okay, good. So maybe I'm not missing anything. Um, missing out on anything. But I, I actually, I know a fair bit about ventilation. said like, I, I don't, I, I didn't know anything about these guys before you brought it up. I mean, I'm not terribly surprised by their Twitter persona, but it is sort of part of like a whole genre of history that gets cut out lately where, they go it's it's very clear that they have like a current year political beef that they're trying to prosecute with it. Oh my god. Dude, like we did anthropologist who just said we shouldn't classify bones as male or female. It's crazy. Just the, the oh, sort of or, or colonizing well, a, the past. There was a book called uh God, what was it called? It was called uh it was something like Heretic Kings and anyway, it was it was like 
the quote unquote new history of like the Mediterranean and the first crusade. And it had like a bunch of little historic, like it, it had a couple of chapters focusing on a couple of little scenes from history. And it was very obvious in each one that it's like, well, obviously like the old historians wanted you to think that this, that these people were like bigoted against Jews or something like that. But really they only had this one persecution of Jews. And even though, <laughs> And, and, you know, even though, even though we, we've been told that they, you know, murdered and raped thousands of Jews here, actually, there's very little documentary evidence. They might have only killed hundreds. So, therefore, our previously existing picture of the uh, intercommunal conflict in the Mediterranean. The it's like a, very, it's like a light version of Holocaust denial. It, it is. And, uh, okay, I singled out Jews there. Maybe I shouldn't have, because there was a lot of different aspects of it. That was the only one that specifically involved Jews. Gotcha. But it was like... There was it, it, a lot of it was about like uh, medieval Spain and like the conflicts between them. And it's like it, there's sort of anyway, sir, it's too big of a digression. But basically, like there's 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 these sort of like acceptable liberal takes on these things, which require you to basically overlook a whole lot of the history, because actually, although there was a lot of trade going on, there was a lot of there was a lot of intercultural communication and stuff. There was also a whole lot of like slavery and, uh, poker and like, no, I mean, this is what drives me crazy. Cause it's, um, it is, you're sort of like colonizing the past with your present values. I mean, the most common version of that is sort of the noble savage trope where like they were all lived in harmony and were environmentalists and somehow these days had our same views on gender, I remember I was lucky enough to be in Mexico City uh, 2019 around Christmas with, with a couple of friends, and they have like a pretty awesome anthropology museum there. And one of the reasons it's awesome is because you learn about these South American indigenous uh, empires, because that's what they were, that we learn very little about in the States, which I think, oh, yeah, I, I think it's like sort of understandable because we, we, America in certain ways came from Europe when it was created, but um. The point is, like, of course, these giant sprawling empires included tyrants and endless warfare and trade and and just the it's so condescending to be like, oh, those those simple Mayans. I don't think people do this about Mayans. I think they had some notorious practices, but it's just very um, anti-human in a sense to strip people of their complexity and nastiness. Well, it's if if you allow them, if you allow the. the people who we now view as the oppressed, their complexity, then you have to allow us our complexity or our ancestors our complexity. Yeah. That was like, like if you, if you allow that the Incas were a, uh, you know, they were a free, they were a theocratic empire that had an established practice of like forced labor that the Spanish later took over and applied, or that they had like a, their preferred method of like uh, controlling dissent was the forced relocation of entire populations from one half of one area of South America to the opposite side, sort of similar to like uh, Stalin's approach to it. Um, you kind of have to, it kind of puts other things that our ancestors did in perspective in ways that I don't think the current historical narrative is comfortable with. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, these are, these are good points. I just, people have a lot of trouble being consistent because it's easier to apply one set of rules to us in the present and especially our enemies. And then another set of rules to these distant people from the past we'll never meet or really understand. Yeah. And, but the, the, the long and short of it is you think that I am morally justified in not reading this book. Um, I don't know about morally just, I wouldn't say morally justified. I think it would just depend on how much, like if you told me you had a huge interest in 
the Middle Ages and had never seen this perspective and were excited to read it, I, I wouldn't stand in the way. Uh, morally, I don't know. It got, it's like it got slightly personal with that Perry it's guy. And, yeah. All right. So, so Jesse Singles' official position is that I'm morally obligated to read this book in order to not be a white supremacist. Exactly, yes. My blurb will be on the paperback. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Well, you've given you've given me a lot to work through and uh, and to explore with that and uh, question my privilege, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, <laughs> bye. Bye. Uh, all right, Jane's got to be my last call. Unfortunately, I just um, I have a slightly hectic afternoon. What is up, Jane? Jane, can, can you hear me? You hear, can, well, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, you're a little. It sounds like your internet's a little bit fuzzy, but I can hear you. Yes. Yeah, I have terrible internet. I'll be concise then, I guess. Um, I'm in Oregon. I'm a school teacher. And in the fall, we are required by the state to put in pads and tampons into the boys' room. And since, can you still hear me? I can, yeah. Um, And since um, I was never a middle school boy, and I'm guessing you were, I wondered what you thought of that. That's funny. I was just at a... um movie theater in Brooklyn last night where they, they had pads and tampons in the men's room. Uh, I don't, I don't have particularly strong feelings on this. I think there's a, the general trend has been to maybe overstate how often stuff like that comes up and to like make a really big deal of these sort of outlying events. Uh, you know, there will probably be some trans boys uh, in the boys' room, uh, and I don't really see a problem giving them access to pads and tampons if they if they need them. I mean, it, it's the same. It's like that's an act. That's an issue for female people that they need those sanitary supplies, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just know from a female perspective, I find it so violating, boundary pushing. I think it's embarrassing. I feel bad for the girls that are going to get pads and tampons waved in their faces. I feel bad for the custodians who are going to have to be removing them from the pipes. I think it's probably zero people who asked for this. And I think it's 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 just this constant, the ideology constantly creating policy that we all have to now live with. And I think it's, um, I think it's, again, I, I say this a lot when I call in, I know, but it, it just feels to me like we're in a bigger state of alarm than, than, oh, you know, it's just all silly ideology and we can kind of laugh and scoff it off. I have had absolutely zero kids, particularly, well, actually, no, it's not zero. The girls who are, you know, identifying as boys, I haven't seen a single one go into the boys' room. I, we had, did have a boy going into the girls' room. I don't think anyway, I think kind of like in between class, like while classes were happening sort of thing, not like during passing times. Um, and it, it, it is, it's just, it's extremely uncomfortable. It's extremely, I, I, it's supposed to, and it's all of these laws are passed with the word dignity in them, the dignity and menstruation act. And it feels like it's undignified for a larger number of people. These kids can get pads and tampons. It starts to defy my understanding of gender dysphoria. I'm thinking if they're so dysphoric, why would they want to grab a pad or a tampon in front of, you know, every all these boys? It, it strikes me as being, what are we even talking about anymore? I kind of feel like the whole dysphoria thing seems like a load of bullshit at this point. I, I mean, I don't think dysphoria about. is a load of bullshit, I th- but I think their argument, whether you agree with it or not, would be that you don't have to have dysphoria to identify as trans. Uh, yes, I, I think that that's where things are going off the rails. Um, 
And uh, I don't know how things kind of come back onto the rails. So because we if this were eight years ago, six years ago, we'd be talking about precisely maybe even zero points, whatever percent of a student population, maybe in your course as a teacher, maybe in your tenure as a teacher, you'd come across maybe maybe one kid, maybe two over the course of your time as a teacher that you maybe you'd know about. I, I just uh, I don't know. I, I find it extremely I find it extremely upsetting, and it seems like the only people who are, I, I can kind of turn to to get sort of steeled arguments and to feel better about it are are women who are like, uh, honestly, like Posey Parker, those kind of women that are willing to go out in the street corner and just state the truth. And it does feel like a battle for truth in a lot of ways. Um, and it, 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 to me, it's upsetting because this is, I, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm working in a school. I'm in a public school. I'm like an ordinary person. And and, and knowing all of the, what I know about it, and I've followed you a lot, and I've listened to Katie a lot, and, you know, whoever else has sort of, you know, talked about this, I feel like I'm sort of armed with more knowledge than the average Joe. And people, I don't think people know what to do. I don't think they know how to push back at it. I mean, these pads and tampons are perfectly available. They're available from the nurse. Why can't you just make an announcement or make it clear that should you need pads and tampons, they are in the girls' rooms. I have a feeling that when cuts start happening, they're going to, you know, this is going to be one of the first things that gets cut because they are available for free in the girls' bathroom. And that was a law that was passed maybe two years ago. So this is probably, you know, some activist extension of that law. Well, if you're going to do it for the for the for these girls, you're going to have to do it for the boys that have their periods too. It's it, it's like this this desire to tear down the, the differences between men and women to socially deconstruct it in, in, in real life, in real time. It doesn't seem like it's just politeness now and we're being kind to certain members of society. It's, it's starting to feel, I don't know, you, you, dystopian, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm just not as pessimistic as you just because it seems like there's more, um, in the U.S. especially, more and more open discussion over, like, you know, what the policy should be and reasonable compromises and stuff like that. I, at least in journalism, I've seen progress. And, I, you know, I know a lot of parents have some concerns or qualms about how schools in liberal areas are treating this stuff. So, uh, yeah, I, I think there's yeah. a reason to hope I mean, I, that the I, conversation will get saner. I like your hopefulness. I do. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm in a con- very conservative area. And so I think it's also going to kind of harm. I mean, this is all, it's all coming from the libs. And so it, it's, it's statewide. And so I'm in a very strong red area um, where the school I teach in is, and so I also see it as just uh, just giving another reason to, um, I don't know, I have a negative blowback on LGBTQ2SIA, threading all those identities together. Just, uh, But I do appreciate your, your optimism. I, I respectfully wonder if sometimes I'm, I'm a little bit more of an ordinary person in seeing things in real life. And maybe as a journalist, I wonder how much of that you actually are seeing. But I, I respect your view a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Jane. Yeah, you could be right about that. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. As always, this was a good, good, wide-ranging conversation. I, all I would ask is if you like what I'm doing here, tell other people about it, point other people to uh, you know, my podcast, my newsletter, and so on. But uh, yeah, I'll probably do another one of these tomorrow, actually, maybe around lunchtime. I'm not sure yet. I've got a little bit of travel this week, so I, I want to do some early in the week. But um, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I hope your week is off to a good start. Bye.